Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Nā mihi nui and welcome to Elemental from RNZ with me, Alison Balance. And me, Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology. And I have to say that looking at the periodic table alphabetically means we often have two very different elements in adjacent episodes. You can say that again. (laughs) Oh yes, oh yes. Particularly true with today's episode and the previous one. So last time we looked at polonium, which was uh, rather poisonous and had very, very few uses, whereas today's element, potassium, is a fundamental building block of life that pops up all over the place. Fundamental potassium details, please. Okay, so potassium, elemental symbol K... Atomic number 19, that's putting it up in the top left-hand corner of the periodic table. And it is a metal, and it was first discovered by the great Humphrey Davy in 1807, who was in the right place at the right time. It got its name from the English word potash, which is an old name for potassium salts that were obtained from wood ash, uh, because that's what Davy was working with. And uh, incidentally, potash is primarily a mixture of potassium salts because plants have little or no sodium content. Oh, curious. Why does it have the symbol K? Well, the symbol K comes from kalium, and that comes from the Arabic term for alkaline, alkali, or plant ashes. And um, that is also where we get alkali from. So Davy proposed the name potassium, but several other chemists proposed kalium. So we found that the English and the French-speaking countries went with potassium, but the Germanic countries went with and indeed still use the word kalium. I did not know that. (laughs) Now, why was Davy in the right place at the right time? All because of electricity, in fact. And so electricity was, I guess we could say, tamed in the form of a battery by Volta in 1799. And so Davy was around at this time, and he realised that a battery could well be used to generate electricity to isolate elements from their ores. And that could be done by basically giving them electrons. Uh, That's what we need to do to isolate uh, the free elements. So Davy, he he was on a roll, in fact, at that stage. Uh, He was successful in isolating sodium, magnesium, calcium, strontium, barium, and potassium. And he did all of this using a process called electrolysis. And as I said, that essentially is just providing electrons for the reduction of the metal cations as they are to the elemental metals. And so potassium was, in fact, the first of these metals that he managed to isolate. So all the metals in that list that I just read out, uh, they're all group one and group two metals. They all react very, very easily with water, and that, in fact, makes them difficult to obtain chemically because if you're doing it in some sort of water solution, they then just react with the water. And Davy soon found potassium, in fact, to be highly, highly reactive with water and to impart a beautiful, subtle violet colour to a flame. 
Violet or lavender? I'm, I'm never quite sure of the difference between those two, but purplish, maybe. <laughs> That'll do. <laughs> so speaking of the reactivity of potassium, probably many of you will have seen what happens when you put potassium in water. Maybe you had a cool high school teacher who would have thrown a lump of potassium into some water and told you to stand back. Here is a very vivid account of this process by a guy called Max Gurgel. And uh, he wrote a book, which is brilliant. It is out there on the internet. I would thoroughly recommend it. And it is called, Excuse Me, Sir, Would You Like to Buy a Kilo of Isopropyl Bromide? The name of the book coming from the fact that uh, Gurgle started uh, his own chemical company. So he was at boarding school, and he and some of the boys have just stolen some potassium, amongst other things, from a chemistry lab, and it's sitting in the back pocket of one of them. And I quote, here we go. (laughs) So Albert led the way. He was a large, burly figure in the dim light of the basement. I noted smoke coming from his back pocket, then a tongue of flame. Albert, I cried, you're on fire. He needed no warning, jumped up and down, sending a shower of glassware and chemicals and making profane, uncouth sounds. Knowing nothing of the high-activity position of potassium in the electromotive series, I ran into one of the labs and fetched a large beaker of water, which I applied to his backside. There was a muffled explosion, more fire and a hideous scream from the tortured Ragsdale. He rose several feet in the air and for a full minute achieved levitation. Ouch! (laughs) Burnt buttocks. Not nice. Not nice at all. How common is it? Potassium, I mean, not not burnt buttocks. (laughs) So pretty common. So potassium, again, depending on what book you read, is either the seventh or eighth most abundant element in the Earth's crust. And quite abundant in our bodies? Oh, very much so. It's an essential element for humans. And uh, in the body, potassium ions, so that's potassium with a positive charge, together with sodium ions, are crucial for transmission of nerve signals. That's right. It's all coming back from high school biology. Uh, The sodium-potassium pump in a cell (laughs) uses ATP as energy, Mm -hmm. and a single cycle of the pump moves three... Sodium ions, are they, to the outside of the (laughs) cell and moves two potassium ions back to the inside. And then because you've moved more positive to the outside, you get a separation of charge across the membrane or something. (laughs) Does that sound right? Yeah, that's that's pretty good. That's pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) And indeed, this is very, very important. And the discoverer of the pump, one Jens Skal, won himself a Nobel Prize for this. So... Obviously very important, and this is why we need, in fact, a few grams a day of potassium in our diet. And bananas, raisins, peanuts, and potatoes are pretty good sources of this. So we certainly need some. We don't need too much, though. And, in fact, too much potassium is or can be very bad for us. And this is why potassium chloride is used as one component of lethal injections in the good old US of A. And what that does is it affects the balance of sodium and potassium ions and ultimately ends up stopping the heart. Um, yeah. <laughs> I promised there would be fewer deaths in this episode of Elemental <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. compared you, to polonium. You, you did. You did. Well, there's one anyway. <laughs> now, those of you listening may be horrified to know that naturally occurring potassium actually contains around 0.012% of the radioactive potassium-40 isotope. So... That's about one atom in 100,000 of potassium is radioactive. So every time we eat a banana, we're actually eating something slightly radioactive. Is this bad for us? (laughs) That's a a very good question. Um, Is it bad for us? 
Not really. So it's been estimated that you would have to eat 10 million bananas all at once to die of radiation poisoning. On the other hand, you would probably experience chronic effects if you ate 274 bananas every day for seven years. I can think of some other chronic effects you might be (laughs) suffering from before you got radiation poisoning. And they've they've actually developed a unit called the banana equivalent dose, which is, in fact, a (laughs) unit of radioactivity. I kid you not. Look it up on the web. It's used for describing relative risk of radioactivity. It's it's very clever. So I think the banana risk is quite low then? (laughs) Yeah, pretty much, yes. How do we use potassium industrially? Well, one very important use of potassium involves the potassium-40 isotope, the radioactive one, and that is important in dating rocks because it decays to argon-40, and if you go all the way back to the A's in the Elemental Podcast series, you'll find that we discussed this in the argon episode. So industrially, most of the potassium that gets extracted every year ends up in fertilizers, and other uses for it include glass making, and it's used in soaps and detergents. Well, I did like your banana scale for radiation risk, but you must have another interesting fact about potassium. Well, here we go. So it is, or at least used to be, uh, very useful for home baking. So we like our bread and our biscuits and all those sorts of things, cakes and everything to rise. And so there was a leavening called pearl ash, which was the precursor to modern baking powder. So pearl ash was a purified form of potash. And believe it or not, the two were the subject of the first patent in the United States, which was issued in April 1790. Crikey. I know. Yeah. Very, very cool. Now, you had to make this stuff. You couldn't whip down to the corner dairy again to get this. And its preparation actually took a long time, And uh, but it could be done at home. So what you had to do was take all the ashes out of your fireplace, number one. Uh, you soak them in water to make lye, and then you boil the lye to remove the water, and you obtain, quote-unquote, salts. This doesn't sound very edible up to this point. <laughs> I know, yeah. Mmm, ash. So the active ingredient in uh, this pearl ash was, in fact, potassium carbonate. So that's got the chemical formula K2CO3. And for those of you who know anything about carbonates, you will know that when you put that in contact with an acid ingredient, like, let's say, sour milk or lemon juice, you get a chemical reaction that evolves carbon dioxide. And so with pearl ash, cooks were able to create new recipes for new types of cakes and biscuits that were easier and quicker to make than yeast-based recipes. And another baking-related piece of trivia, so a thing called potassium bitartrate, which is also known as potassium hydrogen tartrate, is a byproduct of winemaking. And you sometimes see the tartaric acid crystals uh, in the bottom of the wine bottles. And another name for this that home cooks will know is cream of tartar. I've got that in my cupboard at home. I can't (laughs) say I've got any pearl ash. I think I've got the modern equivalent of the baking powder. (laughs) Well, it's patented anyway, so you can't make it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, from levitating burnt buttocks to excitable nerves and shorterized baking, I think this elemental episode on potassium has covered, as usual, a lot of unexpected ground, (laughs) which is definitely one of this podcast's pleasures. Amen to that, yes. You can find more unexpected chemical pleasures at our webpage, rnz.co.nz forward slash chemistry. And on your favourite podcast app, where we are very easy and free to subscribe to. We're back next time with Praseodymium, whatever that is. (laughs) (laughs) But for now, it's cheerio from me, Alison Balance. And me, Alan Blackman. Catch you next time. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.